passage this morning is 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 28, which can be found on page 237 of your pew Bible. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant and ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havala as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep that I hear, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. But the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent, sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as, an, as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. 
And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the word of the Lord. And it is page 237 in the Pew Bibles. And the verses will be on the screen as well. I just wanted to start this morning talking about this egg. I don't know how many of you had eggs for breakfast today. How many of you had eggs? They're, they're really good. Not too many. But anyway, this egg... Oh boy, um, can, can anybody fix this for me? No, it's my illustration. Can, you know, I've done this with the kids downstairs, and there's always one or two who's raised their hand. I, I'll fix it for you. I, I don't really think they can. And the rest of the group says, only God can fix it. We live in a broken world. We chant, give peace a chance, and yet wars continually rage all around us. They'll never stop. John Lennon saying, all we need is love. A generation later, Black Eyed Peas is still singing, where is the love? For we're filled with selfishness and anger and bitterness. We say, why can't we all get along? And yet, our world is infected with racism, misogyny, homophobia, xenophobia, male bashing, anti-Christianity. Why can't we all get along? Our hearts cry out for justice. Yet we learn at a very young life from our parents, life isn't fair. The good they die young. It's might makes right. And our hearts long for a world without suffering and pain. But disease, death, destruction, divorce tear us apart. There's so much pain and suffering in the world that the foremost theological question that is asked is, why would a loving God allow such suffering and evil? Our world is broken and all the king's horses and all the king's men and all of our political saviors or our pundits or our world philosophies or religious system can't Put it back together again. Only God can do that. And so God has always wanted to have a pathway to him. And 4,000 years ago, God chose a man named Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. You 
your seed is going to be a blessing to the world. He established Israel as a light in the darkness that would point to the only one who can fix our broken lives and this broken world. And so he chose Moses and Joshua and the judges and the people cried out for a king and they chose Saul and he had a very good beginning. But we're going to see today because he was broken. If he was not taken away, Israel's light in the world pointing to God would dim and be extinguished. And so today we're going to look at his brokenness. And in that, we are going to see our own brokenness. But we're also going to see the answer for Israel, which is still the answer for us today. Let's pray. Our Lord, may your spirit bring these truths home to us today. May we not sit in our seats and look and point the finger at Saul without pointing that finger back to ourselves. And Lord, do begin with me. Speak to us today. In Christ, we pray. What we're going to see this morning, first of all, is the command that God gave Saul. Then we'll look at his disobedience and God's rejection of him. And we'll see his confession of sin in order to, to be restored to God. And then we'll see God's real remedy the real hope that we have for this broken world. So let's look at his command. We see it in verses 1 and 2. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That command breaks our hearts. We, we can't get our arms around it. Kill every man, woman, child, and infant. It conjures up every evil imaginable of genocide, xenophobia, ethnic cleansing. This passage alone is enough to turn people away from the God of this Bible. Commands like this led prominent atheist Dawkins Richard Dawkins, to say, say this about God. He's a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, an infanticidal, genocidal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And if we start with this passage and passages like this, that is the conclusion that we will draw about God 
And it's very possible as we move to the cross, we will conclude that the cross is cosmic child abuse in the worst way. But if we begin at the cross and we behold the incredible, incomprehensible love of God that he would give his son for us, the incredible, incomprehensible love of the Son of God who would come down, suffer every form of abuse, shame, humiliation, torture, torment, and crucifixion. He would do that for you. He would do that for me. He would do that for the Amalekites. If I begin there, then I'll begin to look at this command in a very different way and I'll say, I have a God of love. Therefore, in some way, this command itself is loving. I don't understand everything God does about this, especially as an individualist, 21st century Westerner. But there are some things we do see. If our world is broken, And at that time, Israel was the light to God. Israel was the only light pointing to the God who can fix the brokenness of our lives and the world. It was necessary that Israel shine brightly. But if they are taken out or they are compromised with idolatry, they would no longer be that light and the world would be in complete darkness. The Amalekites wanted Israel gone, wiped off the face of this earth. We read it in the book of Exodus when they come out of the Red Sea and they enter into the the wilderness. The Amalekites are immediately attacking them. Israel defeated them. But as they continue wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years, we read in Numbers, And in Exodus, the Amalekites are continually attacking them over and over again. In fact, in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, Saul's battling the Amalekites. And so God says, they have to be taken away. But God is still gracious. If the Amalekites had repented, God would have taken this command away. We know this because that's exactly what he does in the book of Jonah. Nineveh is worse than the Amalekites. And so God sent Jonah to preach to them and warn them of their evil and that judgment would befall them. And what do they do? They repent And God relents. And it so upsets Jonah. He's he's angry at God. And so God says to him in Jonah 4.11, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much of their cattle? God had compassion on a very evil people when they repented. He would have done the same for Amalek. 
In Exodus 34, we read, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. God's justice itself is loving. Anyone who responds, no matter how deep and awful and persistent that sin is, how offensive to God, he's waiting and ready to forgive us if we would turn to him. But if we don't, God is a just God. If we persist without repentance, we will receive the judgment that we deserve. And don't our hearts line up with judgment? Didn't we want justice after 9-11 and after the Boston bombing? God's justice is loving. It doesn't sound that way to the Amalekites, but it does to Israel to all of those who would be killed by the Amalekites. It's a very loving thing. To all the loved ones of those whose lives would be taken. To the entire world that needed Israel as a light. They hear this as God's love and protection for them. Now we look at the children. It's really hard to say little ones and infants. But what we've seen is over 800 years, God allowed their sin to get full, and it was not going to stop. The children grew up to be like their parents. This passage points out they are still marauders, not only killing people in Israel, but other nations as well. It's hard, hard to say, but if Hitler's life could have been taken when he was little, would that not have spared the entire world such, so many tragic deaths? God knows every human, the choices they would make. Though it's hard, I don't understand it fully. But I turn to the cross and I say, there is a God of love. And I can trust him and I can trust his wisdom. It's a really difficult command. But it didn't seem difficult to Saul or anyone else of that day. They saw it very differently than we do today. Saul carried it out. And we read this now, and sounds at first like Saul's obedience, but it's really his disobedience. We pick up and you look at verses 4, 5, and 7, and so Saul summons the people, he he gets 200,000 men, 10,000 uh, men of Judah, and he comes upon the Amalekites in the valley, and he defeats them, completely defeats them. 
and he takes Agag the king. And that's it. So he seemingly carried out God's order. He went into battle. He won. Israel was safe and secure. He fulfilled God's purpose. But then the passage continues. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So we see... Saul didn't wrestle with what we wrestle with. He destroyed everything except the king. Everything except the good animals. And he spares Agag's life as a trophy of his great victory. And he establishes a monument so everyone will remember the wonderful victory that Saul had won. He was proud of himself, and he believed that he had completely obeyed God. God didn't see it the same way. Pick up in verses 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. He's turned back from following me. He's not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. God says there's something wrong. I regret I made Saul king because he is not following me. It breaks Samuel's heart, and so he, he's angry because he probably saw this coming. You get a king, and he gets full of himself and so full of power. And so what does he do? He turns to God and prays all night. We've got to turn God. Now, we read in Exodus. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Um, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ear and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So we see a clashing of perspectives here. Saul comes completely full of himself. He, in his mind, has obeyed God completely, and that's what he said. Blessed be God, we're together here. God's so excited about what I did because I completely obeyed the command of God. And what we realize is Saul, 97%. Obeyed the command of God. Perspective of Samuel and God was completely different. Stop, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. 97% on a test gets you an A+. 97% on God's test here gives them a failing mark. Why? Because Saul wasn't doing this for God. He actually gets a zero. He was doing it for himself. He was, he followed God, not because he was in union with God. He followed God because it was a way to impress the people. And so he would go out knowing God's behind him. He wins this victory. He builds the monument to himself. 
He doesn't build an altar to God at this point. He's all about his kingdom, not God's kingdom. It leads us to the question, why do we obey God? Why are we here in church today? I've had to really take this to heart. Am I here today to preach so that you get the word of God? Or am I more interested in impressing you? Do I go to prayer meetings because I'm in union with God and I'm really trying to cry out for God or because it impresses you that I'm at the prayer meetings and have a Tuesday more prayer at my house? It's a question we have to all ask ourselves because Paul, excuse me, Saul, was not in union with God. The key verse is verse 1. We go back to verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, now as you read this verse, is there a word that stands out? Therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. He doesn't just say follow them. He says listen. And you, you've said it to your children. Your parents have said it to you. Your teachers have said it to you. They say now, now listen. And what are they saying? They're saying, understand, get it, assimilate what I'm saying, make it a part of you, and so you obey. It isn't simply about obeying God. It's about being in complete union with God. And Saul was not, even if he was 97% obedient to the commandments. See, it isn't about us passing a test. It's about us getting God and God getting us. And Saul completely fails that test. And so he has to take the kingdom from Saul. Saul's only hope would be repent. And so Paul does, Saul, excuse me, moves into confession. But I want us to look at this confession in light of what true confession is. The word confess is made up of two Greek words which essentially mean speak the same thing as. True confession is to speak the same thing about our sins that God would speak. It's to see our sins exactly as God is. It isn't to enumerate the wrong things we did so they get wiped out. It's becoming into union with God seeing sin that way. And Saul's confession falls short time and time again. So I want to, I'm going to go through this quickly. It should be one or two sermons just on, on this. Uh, but I encourage you to, to really process this and really think about it. Also, if you want, you could turn to Psalm 51 because I'm not going to put the, he's not going to be up on PowerPoint. Psalm 51 which is on page 474, because I'm going to juxtapose Saul's confession to David's in Psalm 51. Because there's many of us who say, why does God allow Saul to be, 
have the kingdom taken from Saul, but not David, who did apparently much more egregious sin. And the answer is, David confessed his sin. Saul may have said the word, I sinned, but it's no true confession. First of all, we see that Saul was slow to admit his sin. He thought he was wonderful. He thought he was great. He's surprised that God would say this is sin. What it shows you is he's on his own page. He's not on God's page as he looks at his sin. And I think we see that in our culture today, but I think we see it in our own lives. Are we on our own page about sin? Are we really seeing it as God sees it? And so when we go to verse 21, And there, there's three problems we see here. First, it says, he says, the people took the spoil. So what's he doing here is he's blaming others. It's, you know, you know I'm, I guess I didn't do it exactly right, but it's really the other people. It's the people. They, they did it. Remember Adam? Adam, did you eat of the tree? Well, you know, it's the woman who gave it to me. So I'm not, I don't, you shouldn't hold me responsible because other people are involved here and they're really the ones who led me to sin. In contrast, Psalm 51.3, David says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever present before me. This has nothing to do with anyone else. It's my sin. I know it. I own it. And then verse, same verse, we read, he says, well, we took the sheep, that we took the best ones because we're really going to sacrifice those to God. And so what's he doing? He's trying to put a spiritual veneer over his sin. Even to the point of, you know, we're going to sacrifice. Look at the good thing I was going to do with these. Look at I'm very religious, so I was going to sacrifice. So she, you know, I did everything else, and, and I did this for a religious purpose. So, you know, why are you upset? David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And what he's saying here is, whereas Saul is saying, hey, look at I was going to sacrifice, so forgive me for that. David says, there's nothing in me that is worthy of being forgiven. According to your steadfast love, it's according to your mercy. That's the only way I can have forgiveness because I cannot earn it. We cannot make up for our sin by religious activity. Sometimes, I used to do this even in my confession. I said, if I feel really, really, really bad about my sin and I promise I'll never do it again, then God will surely forgive me. And what am I saying? I'm earning 
my forgiveness through this confession. David says, there's no way I can earn my own forgiveness. I am at the mercy, loving kindness of God, and I call out to that, which he provided at the cross. Notice, too, he says, and I was going to sacrifice it to the Lord, your God. It doesn't say my God, our God. He says your God. And so what we're seeing here is that he has a different conception of God that Samuel has. And I'm sure he's thinking, boy, Samuel, you're you're going to take the kingdom from me. You must have a very harsh, unloving God. But my God, no, he's loving. He's understanding. He's not going to hold, he wouldn't hold this sin against me. That's your God. And I'm sad to say that much of our culture today is just like Saul here. So many conversations I've had where I say something about God and his holiness and his justice. And a person will say, well, that's the way you see God. But I see God as loving and he's going to accept everybody um, just because he loves us all. Samuel is getting it directly from God. I, you want to get your understanding of God directly from Scripture, not from personal preferences. That's not true confession. Verse 23, we read, For rebellion as as of... This is now Samuel talking to Saul. For rebellion is the sin of divination, presumption, iniquity, idolatry. You've rejected the word of God. So what we see here is Saul doesn't understand the comprehensiveness of his sin. He's sitting there going, well, I, I, you know, all I did was spare a few things. I really carried out everything else you asked, and I obliterated those pagans. And notice the sins that Samuel points out. They're the sins of the pagans. The sin of divination, presumption, iniquity, idolatry, those are the pagan sins. And yet he's saying, he's telling Saul, don't you understand your sin is just as bad as the sin of the pagans. You don't get it. Do we get it? Or do we look at ourselves and compare ourselves to the world and all the sin that's going on in the world and look down on them and think that, well, we have sin, but it's, our sin isn't as bad as the rest of them. And God says, oh, no, it is. When David confesses in Psalm 51, he calls it sin, transgression, iniquity. He says he has an unclean heart and he's deserving of the Holy Spirit to be taken from him. David understands that sin isn't, oh, I broke a rule. It's a, it's a moving toward other gods. 
And it might be, it, it, our sin is trying, we're turning to our sin in order to fulfill ourselves in a way outside of God. We turn to other gods to fulfill ourselves. We turn to other, other lovers. James calls our sin adultery. Why? Because we're turning to another lover instead of to fulfill our desires rather than to God who is waiting to fill them all. Do we understand the nature of sin, the comprehensiveness of it, as David did? Now we do see Saul saying to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I got caught up. I'm really sorry. Now, if you notice the context of this, he doesn't say this at the beginning when Samuel first confronts. It's only after Samuel says, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. Now all of a sudden, oh, the kingdom's going to take me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I guess I did it wrong. He isn't concerned about God. He's only concerned about the consequences of his sin. Contrast that with with David, who says in verse 4, Oh, that God might be justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. What's he saying there? Is he's saying, God, you are, you are just and blameless if you pour out the consequences of my sin upon me. I deserve everything you would do to me because of my sin. Very different than, oh, I don't want those consequences. Is that why we're confessing our sin? Are we afraid of the consequences? Or are we united with God and seeing our sin as God sees it? And then in verse 25, he says, you know, I, I sinned. Uh, let's move on. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may now... Uh, and I bow before the Lord. I know I, yeah, I, I sinned, so uh, Kate, that's over with. You know, forget about it and let's go, let's go worship the Lord together. I'm not saying in our confession we need to sit there and we need to carry guilt on ourselves and beat ourselves up and immerse ourselves in shame. But we need to do what David did. David says, blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. You see, David didn't just say, forgive my sin. He's saying, that sin came from an unclean heart. It came from an unfaithful spirit. God, I'm not going to move on. I can't move on unless you transform my heart. You transform, you give me a faithful spirit. That's true confession. And so we see that God takes the kingdom from Saul. We pick up. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and he tore it. 
And Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to your neighbor. The Lord tears the kingdom away from Saul because Saul is unfaithful. He has truly rejected God. He's going his own way. And that will lead Israel to go its own way and the light will go out. Man is not the answer. A king going his way instead of God's way will never be a blessing to Israel or to the world. It's a reminder that every solution we try outside of God is destined to fail. No matter how important one's intentions are. But there is hope because he says, I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to a better king. Now, in the immediate context, we know it's David who has a heart for God. We've seen that in Psalm 51. But ultimately, he's speaking about a better king. David would fail, too. He'd falter. But there is one king who has never sinned, who has always been united with God, and that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is that king who comes to the world and says, I am the light of the world. He is the one who points us to God and actually brings us to God through his death. He fixes the broken world. Read the last chapters of Revelation. He overcomes death. He vanquishes disease. He heals broken hearts. He wipes away every tear. He reverses everything, every part of the curse that our sin has brought. Jesus will ultimately do that. But he also fixes broken lives today. See, when we sin, our relationship with God is broken. But Jesus Christ took the penalty of our sin upon himself so we could have a relationship with God. So when we place our faith in Christ, we see our sin and say, our, our religion can't save us, but God's mercy can and that, that the cross can. And then we are called children of God, adopted as sons and daughters. He fixes our own brokenness. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were filled with shame. Christ took that shame upon the cross. So to wipe out our sin and to wipe out the guilt and to wipe out the shame and to give us purpose, vital, eternal purpose in life, to give us an identity that we are always meant to have as the image of God, beloved, infinitely beloved by God. And he fixes the brokenness of our relationships with others. Because when we are fulfilled in Christ, we don't need others to fulfill us. We don't need to be angry because they've let us down. We don't need to hold grudges because we know we've been forgiven so greatly. How can we not forgive others? We don't need to be self-centered, but we can be other-centered because he's fulfilling us. Jesus Christ fixes broken lives today. The broken world he will fix when he returns. But this sermon series has an underpinning of we're in a transition looking for a new pastor, new lead pastor. So, so what do we learn from this passage? 
Well, first of all, I want to say, Jesus said he was the light of the world, but he also said, you are the light of the world. Don't hide that light under a bushel basket. So what I'm saying about the lead pastor has to be true of us because the church of Jesus Christ is that light, not just an individual pastor. But what we learn from this passage is, first, Saul compromised on God's word. Our lead pastor and we cannot compromise on God's word. We cannot be 97%. We cannot be swayed by the culture because we want to be more attractive and we'll be 97%. We need to be committed to the word of God and not waver from it, either in our preaching, our teaching, or our living. Secondly, we want a pastor and we need to be a people of a humble heart who can see our own sin and have real confession, see our sin as God sees it, and make real, genuine confession of our sin. And thirdly, there's only one true better king, Jesus Christ. We need to cling to him. I remember when Brandon was interviewed, he's asked the question, what what do you bring to Westgate? And he said, nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That resonated with our church then, and I hope it resonates with us today. Our lead pastor will not be a savior, but we need him to continually point us to that savior and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May he bless us in our search. Our Father... There's a lot to digest. I trust that each one of us will have heard you speaking, not Bruce speaking today. Put any of my words out of the way, but let your word and your truth resonate and bring us to you so we become one with you, passionate about you, and passionate to bring others to you. Amen.